this down for me a little bit. Thank you. I want people to be able to see their Bibles, but not, um, not much more than that. That was a call to worship. That last song right there was a call to worship really in so many ways is really what we are hoping for in this season of Advent is that it would be a time where we as a people would truly adore Christ. Man, there's so much going on. I get it. There's this season of uh, festivities and activities and travel and uh, all the things. It starts from Thanksgiving and it doesn't end until first week in January. And it, it can be really distracting. But we as a people really want to work at adoring him. And that, that song, I don't know if you really thought about it, uh, that song uh, or what it's actually saying, Oh, come let us adore him. Uh, oh, come all ye faithful. It's a call. Oh, come ye faithful folks. Let's together enjoy him. A joyful people, a triumphant people, let's enjoy. Let's all come to Bethlehem and enjoy what happened 2,000 years ago. Let's behold him together. Man, let's just do everything we can to tune everything else out just for a few minutes and just behold him together through the ancient scriptures. Man, what a treat we have in store in these next few minutes. Let's pray toward that end, that God will do this, that this in us, adoration. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together this morning. We beg you to tune us into you and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, uh, work in us the miracle, and what it's going to take is a miracle to tune out all the distractions of all the things, of all the activities, all the struggles, all the discouragements, all the festivities, everything in between. Lord, we pray just for a few moments this morning that we can really sit at your feet and enjoy who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. I pray in these next few minutes that we together can adore our worthy Savior. Lord, also this morning, we want to lift up some of our younger brothers and sisters. We want to pray for little Trevor this morning. Lord, we pray that you would sustain him, give him endurance, heal his body from infection and cancer Keep him cancer-free so that he can be treated. Lord, we pray for his family that you'll give them endurance. Lord, don't let them lose hope in you. Make yourself known to them. Show us how we as a people can come alongside. We pray for Everett, Lord. We pray for he, just for a treatment or a healing. We pray for something to come from nowhere that you would get all the glory of how he can find some healing and hope for a healthy life. We're entrusting him to, to, uh, to you, Lord, and entrusting his family to you and praying that you would sustain his family as well. Lord, we pray, too, for a little Channing and for her uh, struggle to breathe and get oxygen and for her lungs to work. Uh, we pray for her family, Lord. We are entrusting her family to you. Such uh, difficult circumstances, and we know that we are bringing them before a good father and that you are able Lord, sustain them and be glorified in the work. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community. We're praying for uh, Ridgecrest Baptist Church and praying for Matt Beasley and his family. First of all, I want to pray for his worship, Lord, that he is enjoying you, that it blesses his marriage and blesses his role as a father. 
Lord, I pray that that would sustain him and, and guide him as he works with the other elders of Ridgecrest and that together that they would bring you glory in how they guide and how they shepherd and how they care for your people. Lord, we are entrusting Ridgecrest to you and thankful for the great, wonderful things that you're already doing there. We ask you to do plenty more. Lord, lastly, we want to pray for our people group this morning, for the Banjara people of India, a 6.1 million people of 0.4% Christian. Lord, we hear those kind of numbers, and it's hard to imagine that a little old church on, on the east side of Dallas could lift up something so grand, but we recognize we're bringing it before a God who is able. Lord, we ask you to send workers to the far corners with the good news. We ask you to burden people to adopt from the far corners, to draw people groups into your, your, your uh, believing families that they may believe and that they may go home eventually at some point with the good news. Lord, we pray that you would work your glory in drawing a people unto you. And hasten Christ's return. Lord, we are turning this time over to you as an offering. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Zechariah for uh, Advent. Uh, Greg preached from Zechariah chapter 3 last week. And you're going to see in a moment, he preached from a dream. If there were any uh, sermon in Zechariah, any passage in Zechariah that would, that would be a nice standalone sermon without a lot of, of context, that would be the one because you know how you sort of parachute into a dream. It just happens over the course of a night. And that's in many ways what happened last week. What I want to do this morning is give some context to help you sort of see where the story of Zechariah is playing out, why it connects to their context, what he was doing then, and how it might connect to us in our circumstance. So I, it, I, this, this timeline has been something that's been helpful for me. So I'd like to take just a moment and kind of acquaint you with the storyline of where we are. Let's go ahead and put that first slide up. This is, uh, these, these dates are not exact, by the way. Okay? Uh, they're, they're roundabout ways or roundabout dates that kind of help you visualize some high water marks of the story of a people. Okay? Here's, here's why I think this is important that we take time to do this periodically. Is because you can share Christ with folks in your workplace. You can share Christ with folks in your families and wherever you may go. And man, I want you to do that. I'm encouraging you to do that. But you need to be equipped to do that. You're sharing the story of a people. You're not sharing sentiment. People need more than sentiment. The story of a people is what you're sharing. What God has done in gathering a people unto himself, which he's doing right now, which you are a product of. So this storyline is we're on the storyline there at the far end. I always put us on the storyline because there we are. Thank you. That's nice. Handy. Thank you. And we have creation at the far end. There's a dotted line there because we don't know how long ago creation took place. Some folks are young earth people. Some folks are an old earth people. You can love Jesus and be both. So put a dotted line there. 2,000 years before Christ, that's B.C. on the left of the cross there, uh, is around about Abraham's time frame. The Exodus and Moses would be around about 1,500 years before Christ. David would be around about 1,000 uh, years before Christ. Go ahead and hit that next slide. We've got to give a shout-out to the Reformation because it's so awesome. And Martin Luther's such a, such a hero. And 1517, the Reformation on there, we just put that on there just because we can. It's because it's awesome. Okay, next all right, this is where things get a little bit dicey. And let me share with you, too, part of the reason that I do this on Sunday mornings is I went to seminary not knowing this timeline. 
let's see, that would have been 16 years ago, 18 years ago. I would have been, I don't know, 40, no, 30, 30 years old. I grew up a Christian, grew up in the church, grew up in the faith. I became a Christian at the age of six. I didn't know this storyline. And it's so simple if you really kind of get your hands around it. Then your Bible comes alive. Okay, you understand where books fall out. Okay, so this right here, 722 B.C. is when Samaria was invaded and defeated. And Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, was led off to Assyria. That's the Assyrian exile. Okay, the next slide. This is the Babylonian exile. Judah, the southernmost kingdom, in 587 B.C., the temple, the first temple that Solomon built, was destroyed. Jerusalem was just completely destroyed. And then Judah was led off to exile in Babylon. Okay, this is context. The second part of this is context for where we are today. This exile took place for about 70 years. Just personalize this thing and imagine someone coming in your home, ripping you out of your home, and leading you off to some foreign land, India. I mean, since we just prayed for folks in India. They lead you to India, and you become a servant in their house, you and those after you, for about 70 years. That's what happened to Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, so go ahead and hit that next slide. The story of Zechariah falls out about 520 B.C. Okay, Zechariah is involved in the context, the time frame, where the people are allowed to go back home. Okay, in our case, it would be going back from India to Greenville. In their case, going from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Okay, Darius, uh, the Persian king, defeated Babylon, and he's given the, the uh, Israelites permission to go back home. Okay, that's sort of the storyline of where we are up to this point, or where we are today. We're going to be in that context where people are starting to make their way back to Jerusalem. Okay, go ahead and hit that next slide. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little context of what's going on with the people. And this is how we might connect in the next few minutes. Okay, this is how we can connect over the course of this sermon. Okay, the people, first of all, they were displaced due to their sins. That's what exile means. Okay, that's not the first exile. The Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile are not the first two exiles in the Bible. The first exile took place in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Because that's what happens when sin takes place. Is sin creates a, a separation and a displacement due to their sin. In this case, these guys are displaced from their homeland due to the sins of their father. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Judah. And again, our focus will be more with Judah and Jerusalem and these guys coming back from Babylon. We should first of all be able to relate to this story in the sense that we have experienced exiles. If you've ever had sin happen in your life or sin happen in your context or in your family or in your marriage, you know what it does to marriages. You know what it does to families. You know what it does to businesses. You know what it does to friendships. It creates displacement and separation. So let's all connect to that in this first sense. We can understand how sin brings displacement. Second thing that's going on in this people is, they're, first of all, they're displaced Northern kingdoms in Assyria, southern kingdoms in Babylon. Secondly, they are at home in Babylon. Okay, I mentioned that Darius gave them permission to go home. Just imagine you're in India, and the king of India gives you permission to go back to Greenville, and you're like, 
I don't know. I've kind of grown fond of curry. I love curry. And, um, you know, the things that y'all do here. I don't know what you do in India, so I'm trying to think off the, off the cuff. You know, I've kind of enjoyed cricket. Maybe you play cricket. I don't know, something fun like that. Um, I, I've kind of enjoyed India. I don't want to go back home to Greenville. That's what's taking place here. These people, these Israelites, who are from Judah, have grown comfortable and at ease in Babylon. We ought to be able to relate to that too because we can grow real comfortable and real at ease in this place that is not our home. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims here awaiting our eternal dwelling in a new heavens and new earth. But man, we can find ourselves getting real comfortable and real at ease. Okay, the third thing that's going on in this people some of the people have gone back home. Okay, if you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a little window into that. The book of Ezra, those are people that have gone back home to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the wall. They're starting to rebuild Jerusalem. They've laid the foundation of the temple, but they're experiencing extreme discouragement. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know, man, the neighbors have made it really difficult. All manner of subterfuge, all manner of sabotage. Everybody's doing everything they can to keep them from rebuilding Jerusalem. Everything they can to keep them from doing the Lord's work. If you've ever been involved in ministry, which I hope every single person in this room is involved in ministry in some way, you likely have or will experience discouragement. And this, too, is the context for this people. They are facing significant discouragement. And lastly... They thought their days were small. Chapter 4, verse 10, just has a brief comment there, but it's a window into the mindset of the people. They thought their days were small and insignificant. Here they are. They've moved back to Israel. They've moved back to Jerusalem. They're trying to get to work rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, but they thought their days were small and insignificant and unimportant. Their daily struggles, maybe, were somehow disconnected from the notion of God actually working out his kingdom and his plan in them and through them. Man, I hope there's a room full of people here today can recognize and acknowledge that we, too, can think our days are small and insignificant and unimportant. And we're just going to work on Monday and coming home on Friday and living through the weekend and showing up to church. And missing out that our days are huge, just as significant as their days were. So they're displaced due to sin. They're at ease in Babylon. Some are at home and working and trying to do the Lord's work, but they're finding extreme significant discouragement. And all in all, they thought their days were small. Okay, that's the context of the storyline. That's the context of the people, kind of what they're experiencing. Now let's figure out where we're going to be in chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn to chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. But I need to give you a little context for that as well. I mentioned that Greg preached last Sunday from a vision. The vision he preached from was in chapter 3. What's interesting about the book of Zechariah is the first half of the book of Zechariah is a collection of visions, and they're really pretty crazy. You could call them a collection of dreams, 
And if you read them, they would be kind of like if you were to get up in the morning and record your dreams. They're going to be really weird. But these dreams in Zechariah's case were actually significant. He had supposedly all eight visions. There are eight of them. All eight visions in one night. I was sharing that with Christy and Daniel. We were talking. We were doing our, our Advent reading. I said, yeah, these visions, they're really crazy. And they took place in one night. And Daniel said, that must have been a rough night's sleep. <laughs> they're like, yeah, he was really cranky the next day. A really rough night full of visions. So what I want to do in these next couple minutes is just acquaint you with these visions. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, and it's just going to be brief notes on each of these. But I want you to see what they are because they're really significant in making sense of where we're going today. Okay, so there's eight of these visions. I've numbered them. So there's going to be a little number that you'll see corresponding to each one. This is not a chapter number. This is a number in the way they flow out in the book of Zechariah. So the first vision that starts in chapter 1 is a vision about some horsemen. That's the first vision. The last vision, just before where we're picking up today, is about chariots and horsemen. Okay, that's the first and the eighth vision. Okay, go ahead and hit that next slide. That's the second and the seventh. The second one has to do with horns. You'll read that one. And then the seventh one has to do with a woman in a basket. Right? Really weird stuff. Okay? Go ahead and do that next one. Plumb line and a flying scroll. That's the third and the sixth. And then the last one. Joshua, which is where Greg preached from last week, is the fourth vision in chapter 3. And the Zerubbabel, that I'll, I'll tell you who he is in just a moment, is the fifth vision. And that's in chapter Four. Now, let me explain these visions to you briefly, really briefly. One and eight go together. Two and seven go together. Three and five, or excuse, three and six, and four and five go together. And they're actually placed in what we call a chiasm to call attention to the middle two visions, the one about Joshua and Zerubbabel. Okay, this is why if, we, if you don't do the work to make sense of this, you miss out on some really important messages from our ancient writers. All right, so this is kind of cool. Let me just kind of give you a window into what these are. The horse and the chariots. The point of the visions of the horses and the chariots, the number one and the number eight visions, is the world is at peace. It says in chapter one, the world is at peace and it is at rest. It says in chapter six, the world is at ease and is at rest because God is on patrol. Man, he's got his horsemen out, he's got his chariots out, and God is on patrol, and the world is at peace. Okay, the point of the second and seventh vision, the horns and the woman in the basket, is these are reflections and visuals on Israel's past sins, which are profound. Okay, I'm not going to go into how they are, but just they are. Okay, Israel's past sins. The third and the sixth vision, the plumb line and the flying scroll. Okay, this sounds really crazy. The plumb line is, is the picture of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to eventually be a beacon to the nations. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, you pull out your plumb line, you pull out your measuring uh, stick, and you, you're going to rebuild. That's the picture there. And this flying scroll is the picture of a purified Jerusalem that's purified by the word by the word of God. Okay? And then the fourth and fifth vision. The first one having to do with Joshua, where Greg preached last week. The fifth vision having to do with Zerubbabel. These are the center of the visions. These are the, key, the two key leaders among the returning exiles. Joshua is the high priest. You met him last week. Zerubbabel is the princely ruler. Okay? He's not a king. 
He's a prince. He's from the line of David, which will help you kind of understand how he might fit in the story. They don't have a king because they're really under the hand of Persia at this point. And they will not have another king until Herod, if you want to call him a king. Okay, so Joshua here in chapter 3, which is the fourth vision, Joshua is wearing the dung of Israel. Remember Greg saying that last week? He added new syllables to excrement. Excrement. I mean, emphasizing that Joshua is clothed in dung. Man, that's the vision. Of Joshua. You can kind of see him. He also gets cleaned up in that vision, though. Something happens that makes him clean where he's wearing pure vestments and a new turban. And then in that fifth vision about Zerubbabel, this royal descendant of David, he he along with Zerubbabel are pictured in or he along with Joshua are pictured in that vision as two olive trees providing eternal oil to light lamps that would never go out. Okay, two olive trees providing eternal oil. All right. I'm not going to spend any more time on those visions except to hint at them later in the morning. Okay? But they'll come in handy in the coming weeks as you hear from uh, me again next week, Morris after that, and Greg the last Sunday of the month. Now, where we are this morning is in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. The visions are over. Zechariah is officially awake at this point. He may be grumpy. I don't know the time frame that took place between that night of visions and what's actually happening in this story. But this is not a dream. This is a narrative. This is an actual event that takes place with real people, one named Heldai, one named Tobijah, and one named Jediah. Cool, old-fashioned names. And a real priest named Joshua. He's not vision in this time. He's not a dream. The real priest is in this story. And then, of course, our real guy named Zechariah. Now, here's what's really cool about this passage. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, is called the central hinge for the entire book. It's a really, really important passage to make sense of an old, ancient book. An old, ancient book that a lot of people never touch. Because it's difficult, because you have those weird visions. This passage we're going through today is the central hinge. And we're going to take a few minutes and just start unpacking it. Okay, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 and then 12 through 14. And if we get to it, uh, verses 15 and beyond. And the word of the Lord came to me, not in a vision. This is a real thing. Zachariah's awake. He said, take from the exiles three dudes. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, another real person in a very real story, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, let's gather up a few of the details. All right, we're going to get into the story. It's going to be awesome. First of all, there's an entourage arriving from Babylon. These guys apparently were not at ease in Babylon, and they're ready to go home. These three guys, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, have left Babylon, have been given permission, and they're coming back to Jerusalem. We had no idea at this point where they got their silver and gold. It may have come from the original raiding of the, the temple and destruction of the temple some 50, 60 years earlier. It might be actual temple silver and gold. We don't know. It could just be riches of Babylon. Or Persia. Darius may have said to these three guys, here, take this stuff back 
to Jerusalem. We don't know where the silver and gold came from exactly. But these three men from foreign lands arrived to visit a new coronated king with gifts. Wink, wink. Hint, hint. Okay. And they go to Josiah's house. We don't know who Josiah is. Josiah might be a silversmith. You're going to read here, here in a moment. Here, I may have read it already. He's supposed to make a, 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 a crown out of silver and gold. So maybe Josiah is a silversmith, and maybe these three guys are just going to visit Josiah at his house. What's more likely is that Josiah is a treasury steward, and his house actually would be the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If it's at his house... If, it's at the, if that's the house we're talking about, then Zechariah would, would be to get, he, he would be, uh, he's instructed there to gather with these three guys and gather the silver and gold that they brought and to make crowns. It's singular here in our passage, but in the Hebrew it's plural. To make multiple crowns for Joshua. Likely what they did is they took silver and gold and they intertwined it and made multiple crowns that were sort of intertwined into this one thing for Joshua. And it's at this house that Zechariah makes a crown, and he sets it on the head of the high priest Joshua. Okay, And Zechariah is basically officiating for what we would call a coronation. All right, so let's see what happens. He gives it, God gives him some specific words to say, beginning in verse 12. And say to him, Zechariah, say to this high priest, he's got this crown on his head, which is actually multiple crowns, intertwined, silver and gold. Say to this guy, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. All right, so let's gather up what's being said here. At this coronation, here's what Zechariah has been instructed to say over Joshua as he's got this crown over his head. Behold the man whose name is the branch. That's the first thing. And then he's to say that branch shall branch out. It's actually a little play on words in the Hebrew. Behold the man whose name is the branch, and this branch shall branch out. That'll be important at the end of the morning. He shall build the temple, is what he says. He says it twice. He says it in verse 12 and in verse 13. He shall build the temple of the Lord, is what he says at the end of verse 12. And then in verse 13, he starts it out again. It is he who shall build the temple. Just in case anybody's missing it, in case anybody in the room at that point, at that house, wherever that house was, and anybody in this room is missing it, Zechariah says, Joshua, you shall build the temple. Or he says, he. We're going to parse that out here in a moment. He says, he shall build the temple. Then he says, he shall bear royal honor. Huh. Then he says, he shall sit and rule on his throne. He also says that twice. He shall rule on his throne. There it says in midway in verse 13. He shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. Something else that we should pay attention to. 
and really, just for a moment, we should just consider, just, just think about where in the story of anywhere in the Bible that you've ever considered up to this point, have you ever seen a priest sitting on a throne, wearing a crown, and ruling? You haven't. This would have been a shocker for every single person in the room. Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, Josiah, maybe even Zechariah would have been really shocked at what's actually going on right here. Where he places a crown on his head and he says, He'll build the temple, he'll bear royal honor, and he will rule on his throne multiple times. This is a shocking moment in the story right here. And then he goes on to say, A council of peace will be between them both. Now, what we believe is going on here is peace between priest and king, between the roles of priest and king, the offices of priest and king, which were two very separate and distinct offices. It seems as if he's saying there's going to be a melding of the two of them. And I'm just thinking for a moment. I'm trying to climb into this narrative because it's a real story. Trying to imagine, first of all, what Joshua would have been thinking. I'm imagining Joshua would have thought, man, I really had a rough night last night. I mean, here I am just trying to build a temple. We got the foundation laid. I can't get people moving. We can't get people going. We can't get things happening. So much difficulty, so much discouragement. And I've had a rough night full of visions. Now I recognize those have come from the Lord. I got those recorded. And now here I am. I'm being crowned as some sort of king. And I'm being told that I'm going to rule. And I'm being told that I'm going to do some things that I'm not supposed to do. This would have been a shocker for Joshua in that context. And I can't imagine it wouldn't have been a shocker for these guys as well. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. They must have thought as they're hearing this shared over him. And they must have said afterward, man, Joshua, you got your work cut out for you, brother. Wow, you got all manner of stuff that's being said about you right here that a priest has never done before, much less a high priest. All kinds of things that are being said about you right here that I cannot even imagine anyone could do. You got your work cut out for you, Joshua. I'm wondering, too, that if Joshua or if Zechariah himself wasn't wondering about what was going on as well. I mean, he's being told clearly what he's supposed to do. But Zechariah knows this story up to now. There's never a king that's had a, 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 a priest that's had a crown. There's never a priest that's ruled from a throne. This is a redirect, it seems, in the story. And Zechariah must be wondering, too, how in the world is this newly crowned Joshua going to be an answer to these crazy visions I had last night? How is he going to make sense of those visions? How in the world is he going to bring world peace? He's just Joshua. I mean, everybody knows Joshua. How in the world is he going to do something with Israel's past sins? How can he deal with the past sins of a people? At that point, a thousand years worth or so? They must be looking around saying, Joshua, how in the world are you going to rebuild Jerusalem and purify her of her sin? How in the world can we put that on a man? Zechariah must have been wondering all these things. He must be wondering too, is is Joshua somehow to deal with the dung that's covering his clothing? How's he going to deal with that? 
How in the world, too, is he going to provide eternal oil to keep lamps lit forever? How in the world is Joshua going to fit the bill for what's being said at his coronation? Just thinking back to the context of the people. How, too, is he going to be an answer to a people that are displaced? He's just Joshua. I mean, he's got a nice crown on his head. I think a lot of them because he's a high priest. But how in the world is he going to fix a people that are at ease in Babylon? Quite comfortable where they are. How is he going to help a people who are discouraged? And how is Joshua going to help a people who are considering their days small and insignificant and unimportant? And here's where I think we get into the, really the heart of the message. Is I don't think Joshua is going to do any of those things. I don't think Joshua is going to do any of those things. I don't think Joshua is capable of doing any of those things. First of all, Joshua was never in elementary school by his friends, by his family. You know how mom and dad can give a kid a nickname? Man, all our kids have nicknames. As far as we know, Joshua never even had a nickname, The Branch. Nobody ever called him The Branch. What in the world are we doing calling Joshua The Branch? The only thing we see that might give some sense of how Joshua is, is related to The Branch would be just a few chapters earlier where Greg mentioned last week. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. This is a really key passage. You're going to see Joshua... And the branch mentioned in the same verse as two distinctly different but connected individuals. In chapter 3, here, and chapter 3, verse 8, hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit is actually you dwell, you that dwell before you, they are men and you are who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant. The branch. You're a sign, Joshua, but I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Joshua's not going to fit the bill for all this set of his coronation because he's not, first of all, he's not the branch. He's just a sign pointing toward this branch. Secondly, Joshua didn't build the temple. Joshua wasn't going to build the temple. Joshua couldn't build the temple. That was a man named Zerubbabel. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. You've met him already. I mentioned him this morning. He's the royal prince that's in the line of David. In verse 9 it says that, of, of chapter 4, it says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. See, priests don't build temples. Kings build temples. Solomon built the first one. Zerubbabel built this one. So Joshua's not going to build a temple. This coronation of these things that are said over him, apparently he's not the one that's going to do this. Zerubbabel built this temple in about 20 years or so. It's a pale version of what Solomon built. But sure enough, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Zerubbabel built that thing, not Joshua. Something else that's true of Joshua is he didn't bear royal honor. I was thinking, you know, of being a high priest, I bet he bore some sort of honor. I mean, wouldn't you expect if you met the high priest, there's only one of them, that you'd be honored? You'd be like, oh, I'm kind of show him some respect. There's not a single passage that I can find in our Bible where a priest is shown honor. 
Not a single passage where a priest is shown honor. Kings, though, are shown honor all over the place. Prophets are shown honor. Jesus himself said a prophet's not without honor except in his own land. But priests, man, they're just, they're just workers. Even the high priest. Yet it's said about him that he's going to bear royal honor. Man, that's really crazy. Let me tell you something else that's said about him here that I'm telling you is not true of Joshua. Joshua did not sit. It says in this passage that he shall sit and rule on his throne in verse 13 of chapter 6. He shall sit and rule on his throne. But Joshua didn't sit down because priests don't sit ever. Man, I enjoyed last week, as Greg pointed out in chapter 3, that everyone is standing. Everyone's standing. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right hand. In verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him. Down in verse 5. The angel of the Lord also is standing by. Look over at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. There's nobody sitting down in that throne room. And there's nobody sitting down in the temple either because priests don't sit down ever. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Priests don't sit down. There are no benches in the temple. Just imagine these benches, you know, acacia wood. Benches sitting on the walls, you know, these priests are all sitting there, tired, haggard, offering sacrifices. There are no benches in there. There are no armchairs made out of acacia wood with gold filigree. You can go back and look at the, the furniture of the temple. There are no chairs in there because priests don't sit down. They stand all day long just offering sacrifice one right after another. There's no bar stools bellied up to the altar. Can you vision that, man? A priest, been a priest his whole life. He's got uh, those veins that you get from standing all the time. His feet hurt. Man, they didn't have podiatrists. They didn't have arch support. They didn't have tennis shoes. Man, he's standing there all day long. Can you imagine they didn't think, boy, we nice to have a bar stool belly right up to the altar. I'm sorry, buddy. You're a priest. You stand all day long. And that's what Joshua did. Joshua, after this coronation, went right back to standing. Because priests don't sit. He also didn't rule. He didn't even have a throne. He couldn't rule. He wasn't from the line of David. That promise was made to David. That covenant that was made with David was the promise, the assurance that there's going to be someone from your line that's going to sit on your throne forever. Joshua's not from that line. Joshua can't be that guy. Joshua wasn't allowed to do king stuff, and kings weren't allowed to do priest stuff. There's a story of a king named Uzziah that actually was a really good king. It's in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's a story of this king who really was a great king, but then he grew proud. And he said, ah, I'm just going to go up in the temple and I'm going to offer up some incense. And you know what happened to him? He busted out in leprosy. He died a leper. 
man, you don't mix these offices. This guy, he didn't rule. He didn't sit down. He didn't have a throne. He didn't receive royal honor. He went right back to his priestly work. And the crown that was placed on his head was placed on his head for a moment. And then it's placed in the, t- in the temple that w- was to be built at that point. It's going to be placed in that temple as a reminder. Because the reason being is because that crown wasn't for Joshua. <laughs> he was just a sign. Remember? He was the sign of the branch. He wasn't the answer to the visions. He wasn't the answer to a people that were displaced, a people that were at ease in Babylon, a people that were discouraged, and a people who thought their days were small. But man, I'm telling you what, we know who that person was. We know who that pointed to. This child that was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. This Jesus that we enjoy every single week. This Christ that we hold out in preaching because we have nothing else to offer. That we embrace in song every single week. This Christ that we dine on in supper. He was and is the promised branch. He's who that sign pointed toward. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah spoke of him as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's the answer because he is the branch. He's the answer to these visions. He is the prince of peace. It's what we read about this morning. He alone, not Joshua. Joshua would be a severe disappointment if these guys, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, Josiah, Zechariah, even walked away and said, Joshua, we're expecting a lot of you, buddy. He would be a severe disappointment. But our Lord, no, he is not. Because he's the fulfillment of all that. He is the prince of peace and the only way this world will be in peace eventually someday. He alone is the answer to Israel's past sins. You know, the story in Matthew or this new Israel, the story of Israel is retold. Except it's told as a person. All that Israel failed in our Lord succeeded in. He is the answer to Israel's past sin. He's building a new Jerusalem, and it's only in him will that new Jerusalem be purified of sin. And he alone is the answer to a dung-covered, excrement-covered high priest. Joshua can't do anything about his sin. He can't do anything about the dung. He's got no verbs To deal with that. But our Lord, the branch, he is the one who dealt with that dung-covered high priest. He's why Joshua could be cleaned up and he's how Joshua could be cleaned up. He removed the dung by wearing it for us on the cross. He's the one, the only one that has any pure vestments to offer. 
He's the only one that gives us a righteousness. It's alien to us. To where now as we are united to him by faith. He is the one due royal honor and glory. Revelation chapter 5 verse 13 through 11 through 13. Listen to this passage. Just sit and listen. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all in the room this morning as we sang earlier and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever because it's due the branch. Man, he's due royal honor and glory because he alone is the branch. You know, the high priest, eventually Joshua, when the, priest was re, or when the temple was rebuilt, Joshua would have the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies. Once a year. Even the, even the crowned Joshua, even though he's crowned for a moment, even the one who is a sign, would still go back to his priestly duties of entering the Holy of Holies once a year. But the branch, the branch entered once and for all, according to Hebrews 9, into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Man, Joshua, I think a lot of you, buddy, he's a great guy, you're a great man, you're pretty awesome, but you can't do that. You can't enter the Holy of Holies one time, once and forevermore, and then sit down. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13 says, And every priest stands daily at his service. I read that this morning also, already, already offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. <laughs> Joshua, you got to go right back to work, buddy. Sorry, no chairs in there. But man, the branch, oh man, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Ah, oh, he sat down and he's reigning and he's ruling right now. This Jesus, this branch, melds two very different offices of priest and king. Only he could do that. He's priest in offering the final sacrifice of himself. And he's king as he vanquishes our enemies. I mean, putting them to open shame. Triumphing over them through the cross. He is the fulfillment of the melding, the shadowed in this coronation of Joshua.
The offices of priest and king experienced peace between those two offices because he earned peace between God and man. And he alone could do that. Only the branch could accomplish this. And this king, this branch, his crown's not on display. That's just a reminder. For he wears this crown along with many other crowns. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. Can there be enough crowns for this head of the branch? He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This branch, this Jesus, is the only one that could accomplish all that was said over Joshua at that coronation. And this Jesus, this branch, is the builder of a temple. We're not talking about a structure because he even said, I, I, I'm going to destroy this. You destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to rebuild it. He's not talking about Herod's temple that he's standing right next to at that moment. He was talking about the temple of himself. He is our temple. He is where we are dwelling. He is absolutely building a dwelling for himself, and we are part of this. He is building a dwelling place for his people that is made of his people. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, We are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We are the stones in this house that he's building. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the number of times in our Bible that speak of some reference of being in Christ or in him, it's him building. It's the branch branching out. Is what that passage says in, that we read this morning. The branch branching out. Verse 15 says that he's going to bring people from afar to help him build it. He's speaking about us. I'll just give you a little brief window, just a window into these in hymns. Just listen to these four passages, five passages, and then I'm going to land the plane, just the final part of this message. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Just envision being in him, dwelling in him, uniting to him by faith. And being built into this temple that is himself. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And here it is, chapter 2, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The branch has indeed been branching out and building the temple ever since his resurrection. He has indeed raised that temple and we are being built into it for those who are trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. That's my invitation to you this morning. 
is that you have to leave the comforts of Babylon to come see this newly crowned king. You have to leave the comforts of Babylon to find this priest king, like three three wise men that traveled from afar to see a newborn king. He is the answer to our displacement due to sin. He is the answer to our discouragement as he gives us encouragement, knowing that he's always at work and that he's good. He's the reason that we realize and know our days are indeed not small as we await his imminent return. I think these wise men are nice shoulders to stand on as they gather too from afar. We gather from faraway lands like Greenville, Texas to worship at his feet. But instead of bringing silver and gold and frankincense and myrrh, we bring him all that we are. We bring him all that we are Offered up as a sacrifice. And it's given in response to the royal honor of this fine priest king called the branch. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us to give us your son. You are so good to us to give us thousands of years of story captured in your word with real people in real rooms hearing real events that are signs of the wonder and glory of the person and work of Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that we are really, as a, as a people, satisfied with this work. As a people satisfied of all that Christ is and all that the branch brings to this story and all that the branch has done for us. We're thankful that as he dealt with the sins of Israel, he's dealt with the sins of those who trust him and place their trust in him and are united to him by faith. Lord, what a gift. What a good gift from a good father. We are thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.